Our scripture reading this morning is found in John chapter 11, the Gospel of John chapter 11. If you turn there with me in your Bibles. Let's all stand then in respect to the reading of God's holy word. We're reading John chapter 11, entire chapter. Follow along with me as I read aloud. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where mm -hmm. Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, 
he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he, will that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. The reading of God's word will be preaching from this text this morning. Trust that God to give us understanding in his word today. Let's take a moment. We'll bow for a word of prayer. Then after the prayer, we will have the message for today from this text and then a song from our choir and prayer after that to close our service. Father, we thank you for this time together. And we thank you for um, just keeping us through this past week. We thank you for your word that's gone out. We think of the funeral service for Sister Minnie Kathy and the uh, message that go went out during that time. We pray, Lord, that that testimony her own words and her own testimony that was shared there might be a witness to her family and friends who were in attendance and those who viewed that, that they might turn to Christ as she had faith in you, that they might 
begin um, that faith with you and live as she lived, trusting you. We thank you for this day and we thank you for um, this weekend and what it represents, the starting of this nation that you allowed to, to be and you allowed to continue. We pray for your protection and your safety. Uh, we pray for um, our, we, we think of our police officers, Lord, who are, are under attack in so many ways and they're so necessary and so needed. We want to say thank you for their service. We want to pray, Lord, that you would encourage their hearts, even using us to bring encouragement to them in this, in this wild, crazy time. We, th we pray for our officials, Lord, both local and national, from our mayor and governor to our president, Lord, and all those who, who work in different offices and uh, positions, Lord, that you would lead them and guide them. We are encouraged when we read today about Caiaphas, who was not a believer, um, but he began to speak some truth from your word because you directed that in him. Um, he didn't get the benefit of that, but he was a carrier to, that just shows you're in control, Lord. No matter who's in office, you are in control and your will will be done. We thank you for that. We rest in that. We do pray for peace. We do pray for the salvation of our officials and, and for wisdom as they carry out their, their, um, their responsibilities, um, that they would leave uh, open in a space, a nation where we can serve you faithfully, publicly, and without harassment, and without restriction. So we pray for that, Lord. Now we pray that you would just use your word today to speak to your hearts and your people. You would minister to those who are sick, some who cannot be with us today, that you would just continue to watch over them, be with us as we care for them, and, and minister to them. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. chose for a text today, this John chapter 11. The Lord has laid this on my heart to just share today. It's a little different. It doesn't follow an, a natural theme of, of our um, 4th of July or Independence Day. Um, it, it follows a higher theme, and that higher theme is what Christ has provided for us. And this is one of the greatest miracles that we see uh, in the Gospel of John, which the whole gospel is there to present the works of Jesus and his miracles so that those who view that might believe. And so I, I chose to focus on this text today. So I'd like you to open your Bibles, John 11, and follow along with me as we look at several things. It's a long chapter, and so what I'd like to do is just to um, take, summarize, or take some things that we should get from the Word of God in this chapter. First thing that sticks out to me here is how Jesus loves and cares for his own. Jesus loves and cares for his own. We see that uh, throughout this account of his interaction with Lazarus. We see, first of all, how Lazarus is connected. He has his two sisters, Mary and Martha, and it, it says several things uh, when Lazarus gets sick, his sisters send to Jesus, and this is what they say to him in verse 3. Lord, he whom you love is ill. <laughs> he whom you love is ill. They, they recognize that there is a special and unique love that Jesus has for his own. 
He had that special love for Lazarus. He had it for Mary and for Martha. And we can see his care and his concern. Look at a few other phrases that depict that. In verse 5, it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Again, it's pointed out, it's emphasizing this special, unique relationship that he had with them. Again, in verse 11, it says, After these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. He says, he calls Lazarus his friend. In fact, he says, our friend, speaking to his disciples. He identified Lazarus as one of them. Our friend, Lazarus. And then again, in verse 33, we see his reaction. It says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. He was deeply moved in his spirit. And so Jesus was impacted by the reaction of Lazarus' sisters to his death. He wasn't callous to it. He wasn't trying to be tough. He was deeply moved by their response. In verse 35, the first passage of scriptures I memorized, <laughs> the shortest verse in the Bible, right? It simply says, Jesus wept. Jesus displayed his tender-heartedness openly before all who were there. He wept. He cried. Now, it doesn't go into all of what was going on there, what was in his mind as he cried, but it does tell us that he cried, that he had a, a tender human response to the hurt around him and the loved ones that he cared for who experienced that hurt. He wept. It was evident to those around him. In the next verse, in verse 36, it says this. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. See how he loved him. Jesus had a genuine love that was displayed, not just hidden, but that was out for others to see. And others could see the love that Jesus had for this man. Again, in verse 38, it says, Then Jesus deeply moved again. He did some things there. He began to come to the tomb. But it, it shares that he was moved again. And he was deeply moved. Are you deeply moved at times? Do you allow yourself <laughs> to be touched, to be moved, to be impacted by the things around you? I find myself oftentimes having to shield myself from so much that I can't, I, I feel like a, a ping pong ball. I'll just be bouncing from place to place if I reacted to everything. And so I, I have this shield on, but I realize that things break through that shield. <laughs> That shield cracks sometimes, and like things just overwhelm, and they move you because of the things that are happening all around us. And I, I recognize that that uh, 
we all sometimes put that shield on a little bit to protect ourselves. But we also recognize that this human experience of life that we're going through, we can relate to the hurts around us because there is a concern, there's a care, and there's a love. Jesus had a concern and a care and a love. It doesn't, doesn't say what sickness Lazarus had. It doesn't even say if this sickness was unique or if Lazarus was particularly young and, and probably, you know, before anybody expected him to die. It didn't tell us any of that. But just the fact that this death affected people around him, Jesus was deeply moved. So that's one of the things that, that strikes me as I, as I look at this. Another thing that draws my attention is early in verse 4. It's how Jesus uses sickness, God uses sickness for his glory. Read verse 4, as I look at it as I read. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. You may think, well, it did lead to death. Yeah, it led to death, but not his final death. And it was there because God was going to use it for his purpose. And so we're reminded that God uses all these things. We, we ultimately know that illness, uh, sickness, is a result of sin. How, how, how do we know that? Well, as we read through the Bible, if you look at Genesis and you look at Revelation, you realize that sickness came as a part of of sin, as, a, as a, the corruption of sin corrupted us physically, it corrupted us mentally, spiritually, in every way, it impacted us. And when we look at Revelation, we realize that when we are in God's kingdom in heaven, all sickness is removed because all sin is removed. And so sickness is a result of sin. And I haven't said that, I want to also say this, though. It's not necessarily personal sin. It is sin. Uh, the effects of sin in this world, but we also see that God uses it to bring about his glory. It's not beyond his control. It's not like God created the world and thought that it was all good, and all of a sudden Satan, Satan started messing it up, and God was like, oh, man, you done messed up everything I've done. There's nothing I can do. It's not like God takes his hands off and is like, I, 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 you messed up everything I've made, and, and I'm just in such a tizzy because you, you messed it up. God uses these things for his glory. It shows that he's in complete control. COVID-19, cancer, anything we experience, God is still in control and is still able to use it for his glory. We need to recognize that. So I see that in this text in a powerful way. Another thing, a theme that I see in this text is in 11 through 13, verses 11 through 13. It says this, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to wake him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus has spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. What, what I see here is that Jesus uses sleep, the term sleep, to refer to death of a believer. That he compares or he likens death to sleep for a believer. That's an important term. It's important for us to realize that as 
as devastating as death is on us as human beings, to those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is of no more consequence than sleep for the believer. In other words, it, it, it's not our final state, it's not the end, and it's not even judgment for us. He says, it's like sleep. You know what? I work hard during the day, and I find myself at the end of the day exhausted. I kid my wife. I, during the day, I try to keep myself busy because if I sit down for a moment, I'll just get tired. I won't want to get up. Sometimes I'll just fall asleep right there. But at the end of the day, guess what? I look forward to sleep. I look forward to rest. Now, it's been a little difficult this weekend and the last couple of weeks with all the fireworks going on and everybody doing their own display. We had fireworks going on way past midnight in my neighborhood. I don't know what your neighborhood was like, so it was hard getting sleep. After I got to sleep, I woke up again. But I look forward to sleep because of the rest, the relaxation, and all that it is that we have, and it's really teaching us that as believers, we are not to respond to death like the world responds to it. Now, it's true that death and the things that are associated with death are not pleasant. Death is not pleasant for us as human beings, and, and it's often associated with suffering and pain because that's what it is. But the result of death on us as believers is a transition from one state to another. And it's no more fearful for the believer than sleep. When I'm older, and like I said, I look forward to sleep, but I, I watch some of my grandkids, they fight sleep with all that they can. They do not want to go to sleep. They're not looking forward to that. If you're not a believer, I don't blame you for fearing death. I don't blame you. I counsel people and they, they wonder why they have anxieties and fears. I tell them those are natural and those are real. You're dealing with a reality that's scary. And you have very little control over it. What you need to do is to throw yourself under God's control. You'll find that as you begin to trust him and know more about him, your anxieties are relieved because you know what his plan is. You know what he's doing, and you rest in him. So this theme here is that Jesus introduces us into how to think about sickness, how to even think about death. Now, when he said this to his disciples, they didn't understand. So it brings up another theme that comes through clearly in this chapter. Chapter. The disciples often misunderstood what Jesus meant. <laughs> it was like it's going right over their head. He would say something and they would get the wrong idea. Look at a few things in, in verse 4. It says, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, we don't hear from the narrative what the disciples thought about what he just said, but they didn't get it. They didn't understand what he said. This illness is not unto death, but it's for the glory of God, 
is he going to die or not? <laughs> you know, what's going on? What do you mean? What are you going to do? It shows later on that they really didn't understand what he's saying. Look at verse 11 through 13. We read that. After saying these things, he said to him, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. They think, well, if he's sleeping, he's resting. That's good, right? He's sick. He needs rest. Let him recover. And Jesus had to tell him plainly, no, I'm not talking about actual sleep. And he says in verse 13, verse 14, Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. They get that, but look at the next statement. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Let us go to him. Thomas, <laughs> verse 16, it's funny. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. He didn't understand what Jesus meant when he says, let's go to him. Jesus meant, let's go to Bethany, <laughs> where Lazarus is laid in, 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 in his grave, and let's visit his sisters. But Thomas thought, well, you said he's dead, so I guess we're going to death with him. That's what he thought. We're going to go die with him. Didn't understand what Jesus was saying. In, in verse 15 again, um, we just read that, verse 15 through 16. So um, we relate to that. We don't always understand. <laughs> we need help in understanding. God doesn't mention it to, to confuse us, but it takes some work to work through what the Word of God says. You don't just grab it and run with it and think you've got it. That's why we have God's Word. That's why we read it. That's why God has given to the church uh, gifted men to teach and to bring out the truth of God's word. And we come together for that reason that we might understand. And then I think one of the most important things is to understand how do we apply that truth in our lives. You may think we understand something, but what does that mean for your life? And, and how should you be living that out in your life. That's something you should be wrestling with every day. Every time you come and you hear God's word, as you listen to me right now, you should be thinking, what does God's word say? What does it mean? And how am I to use that and apply that in my life? Something might be said to you to be used today. Something might be said to you for you to understand and God will show you at the time that he wants you to use it. So we wrestle with understanding God's word just as the disciples did then. The other thing that came out through me, through one of the things that came out through this chapter is that the people knew something of Jesus' great power. It's going to be displayed in this chapter, but they're familiar with some of the works that he's done. Look at verse 37. Jesus is coming he wants to go to the tomb where Lazarus has been laid. And in verse 37, it says, look at verse 36. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? They say it in a critical way, in a critique. Like, how come he didn't do something? Right? How come he didn't do something? But in saying that, they acknowledge that this man had the power to do something. 
So it's kind of like a backward compliment in a, in a sense. They're blaming him for not having done something, but they recognize that this man is, is the one who gave sight to a blind man, and he has great power. And so what's happening is the witness of who Jesus is is becoming apparent to others, but what are they doing with it? Their eyes are being opened in a sense or in a way to who Jesus is, but what do they do? Some start to see Jesus and see they, they, they're being exposed to his power, but they respond in a critical, negative way. We see that today. How come God ain't doing this? And how come he ain't doing that? They recognize God has power and he's sovereign, but in a critical way, they lash out at God. So it's not faith. It's blame. It's anger towards God. It's critical towards God in the same way Jesus experienced that. And so it's amazing that they, in one mind, in one thought, they're recognizing Jesus' great power, but they... Um, are cr critical of him. They know something of his great power. Now, this is different, different response, I think, that believers have. Look at verse 3. The sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. They sent a message to Jesus, and they know Jesus has the power to do something, and so they invite him. They're not lashing out at him. They invite him to come and do something. Again, in verse 21, we see um, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She recognized that Jesus has power and could have done something there. She longed for his power to be at work in her life to impact her brother. In verse 32, we see Mary saying the same thing. Um, now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Notice how she addresses him, Lord. It's a title of respect. It's acknowledging that he is the one in control, the one over her. And she says, in essence, you have all power, and you could have done. I recognize your power to do and to act and to move. What Jesus did, we read in chapter 11, when he brought Lazarus back from the dead, he resurrected or gave him life again. This had a great impact on people, but I want you to notice the different types of impacts that it had on the different types of people. When we go into the next chapter, verse, chapter 12, can I read just a few verses there? Chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover. Now, that's important. Remember in verse 55 of chapter 11, it says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. You have to understand what the Passover was. Passover was a yearly feast that all Jews were required to be a part of. All the men, all the males were required to celebrate in some way. Most were required to actually come to Jerusalem to celebrate that Passover. 
And so what was happening here, the Jews were wondering, and they, they, the people were speaking. Look, look at verse 56. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? They said, they're basically saying, no, he's got to come. Even if the Jews, even if the leaders are looking for him and trying to kill him, he's got to show up, right? He's got to show He's required to come to the Passover. That's what they were thinking. He's got to come. So how's he going to deal with this? There's a crowd of Pharisees and leaders who are looking for Jesus and have put the word out. If you find him, you better let us know. And so they're wondering what's going to happen. Now we get into chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. <laughs> Notice again a reference to what Jesus had done. And we see um, what, um, what Mary does. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and appointed the, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to, he used to help himself to what was put into it. <laughs> Gives us some insight about Judas. You see, the Bible shows Judas to be who he was. He was the one who betrayed Jesus. And as he lived, the other disciples didn't always recognize who he was. But the Bible says this about him, that he never changed his true character. He just hid it a little bit. He was, he was a thief. He was a swindler. He was not a true believer. He never was. Some people think, well, he was a disciple of Jesus. He was a believer, and then something must have happened to him. No. He never changed his nature. He simply covered it up. I want to say to you today, if you're faking and covering it up, that means your nature hasn't changed. That, to me, is scarier than I can bear. Bible exposes Judas and just opens the window for us to see into his heart of what he was doing all along. And so when the big event happened, it's not really a shock or a surprise. We could see what was going on. It, so it says, you know, people can sit in church. People can walk with Jesus or follow him or be in his vicinity. And in their heart, not changed. Not changed at all. That's scary. It means each of us need to examine ourselves to make sure that's not us. And don't play with it because if you're playing with it, you're in dangerous territory. You can fool me. You can fool men. You can fool people. But what do you get for fooling me? It's not worth it. It's not worth it. But let's go on with this theme. We're looking at the reaction of the people to what Jesus did with Lazarus. Um, verse 8, verse 9. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, where was he in Bethany, where, where Lazarus lived and had been resurrected? When the large crowd of Jews, Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only a, on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. 
So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Okay? And so what's happening here is that they made plans to kill Jesus, and they were looking for him to show up here at the Passover feast. And just shortly, a week, almost a week before the Passover, here Jesus is right in the open with Lazarus. And the Jews see him there, and they, they had made plans to, yeah, kill Jesus, but to kill Lazarus too. To, why? Remember I said I wanted you to remember? Lazarus was a living witness, a living witness to the power of Jesus at work. He was something they could not deny. They wanted to hide all the evidence. So that people would not believe. But the evidence was walking and talking and living. And they couldn't deal with it. More and more people were beginning to see Jesus for who he was and beginning to, to turn to him and trust him as a result of the works that he was doing that, that showed exactly who he was. Continuing chapter um, 12, verse 17 now. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. What sign? With Lazarus. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. You know, the Pharisees were afraid of their leadership position in the nation. And they misunderstood what Jesus was doing. They thought, surely with this kind of charisma, this kind of power, he would just usurp all the authority, and they would have no place anymore. People would follow him. They wouldn't be following them. That's what they were concerned about. It's a new king in town. It's a new sheriff taking place. It's a new leader taking over. And so the old leader is going to lose his, 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 his shine and, 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 and all that he has. And that's what they were thinking about. But Jesus wasn't coming for that. They should fear him, but for different reasons. And so they recognized that this thing that he had done in raising Lazarus from the dead was just powerful testimony. I want you to notice something. They don't deny that it happened because they cannot deny that it happened. It would be ridiculous for anybody today to deny that it happened. We can't say for sure no one has ever done this before. Never. Raise one from the dead. And even the people there who opposed and hated Jesus could not deny that it happened. What did they want to do? They wanted to kill him and Lazarus to cover it up, to erase the evidence that it happened. They could not deny that this work had been done. They were frustrated because they knew this powerful work was a powerful testimony to everybody around them. Stay with me in chapter 12 and skip over to verse 36.
Jesus is speaking. In the middle of verse 36, it says, When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. You can understand why he had to hide himself. Because they had a plot to kill him. Go on, verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. They can't deny the signs, but they refuse to turn to Christ in faith. Verse 42. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. (laughs) In other words, this was so powerful that with some people, not only could they not deny what Jesus had done, they were drawn in. You see, this is not a human thing that happens. God is drawing people. There is, the truth is powerful and it's true, but there's something else that happens besides that truth. You know, when I, when I first began preaching, I thought that, well, you know, if you just preach the gospel, you just preach the truth, if you're a good preacher, it's going to change people's lives because they're going to see this truth and they're going to go, wow, that's true. I need to live for God. But then as I preach more and more, I realized that that didn't always happen. And, and sometimes I thought, well, it's me. I'm not dynamic enough. enough. And then I thought, it's the people. They just don't want to listen. <laughs> and, but, but I come to realize something has to happen for a hard-hearted sinner like me and like you to see light when we were blind. To hear and and obey the words of God when we are dead spiritually. God has to give us life. God has to draw us. In other words, he's not like just saying, come here, come here. He's grabbing us and pulling us in. He says, I got you. You're mine. I'm not going to let you stray and just come to the light some kind of way. People imagine that, like we just, we all struggling and looking for the light. Oh, I found it. No. Mm-mm. You were blind and God just yanked you up out of darkness and set you in his family. That's what he's done. When you look at the overwhelming evidence of what's going on here in, in, in this time, these people have everything they need to believe. Some of us even say, if we were there, if I saw Jesus in person, I would believe. No, you wouldn't. No, not until God does a work in your heart to draw you. These people are the same way. They're looking at Jesus right in his face. They are walking. They see Lazarus. They know he was dead. You know, Jesus made a point to wait before bringing Lazarus to to, to, to life. One of the sisters said, Lord, oh, please don't open the, the tomb now. It's been four days. His body's decaying. It's not a pleasant smell. I imagine when they opened that tomb, it was like, woo! <laughs> I think it was. Because Jesus showed them that this was something. This was something. This was something special. And even though they were eyewitnesses to that very thing, There were 
people around in that day who still did not believe. In chapter 12, verse 45. Says, Whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I actually want to go to chapter 11, verse 45. It says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered and the council said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And so they make this plan. What Jesus did impacted some, but there were some people who were repelled by what he did. They, they dug in deeper. They refused to believe. The evidence was there in front of them, but they said, what are we going to do? i tell you what we're going to do. That scheme to put him to death. They admit the signs <laughs> in verses 49 through 52. I'm going to just take you through a moment. And I call this, or some people, some speak of truths they don't know. <laughs> they speak of truths that they don't know about. Look at verse 49. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, Caiaphas is a spiritual leader, and he's saying, he's meeting with the council. You have to understand, this, this is the Sanhedrin council. This is the council of religious leaders of that community. And Caiaphas is, in essence, the leader of the leaders. And he's saying to them, y'all don't know what's going on, do you? Y'all don't know what's happening. In reality, he doesn't know what's happening. He doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know what he's talking about. But he's about to say something prophetic. Look what he says. Verse 50, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Look, at, look what the Word of God says about what he says. Verse 51. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. <laughs> I love that. It's saying he didn't know what he was talking about, but he found words coming out of his mouth that he didn't even understand what he was saying. He did not understand the significance of what he was saying, but God let him say it. In other words, God put the words in his mouth to speak his truth. God does that. <laughs> he can do that. Just because somebody says something that's true doesn't mean they are of God. The truth is undeniable. But it didn't mean that the messenger is true. In fact, Jesus dealt with that. He says, here's how you can tell if the messenger is true. Check him out. Check out the testimony of the messenger himself. And he says, in, in, I think it's in chapter 8, he says, look. I know it's in chapter 5 as well. He's saying, look, the Bible says 
by the mouth of two or three witnesses, let everything be established. I'm telling you, my works are a witness for me. <laughs> Who I am is a witness for me. He says, can any of you convince me of sin? Do you, do you see any sinful thing in me and my character at all? You see the mighty works that I've done, and he says, my father speaks of me. I have witnesses. Check them out. So I'm legit, he says. Caiaphas doesn't know what he's talking about. But he speaks dynamic truth because God prophesied. You heard the story of God using a donkey to speak truth. And he can do that. That's what Caiaphas is doing right here. It says, verse 52, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. It's amazing that it says this because this shows the purpose of God in Jesus' death. And then at the very next statement, it shows the purpose of evil men. Verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. How does that go together? Right? If Caiaphas really understood what he was saying, he'd see that this is a work of God and that God is using Jesus to be the lamb that's, that's going to be sacrificed for the sins of the world and he's being used himself as a murderer. But he doesn't know what he's talking about. There's a reason that they don't believe and don't understand Jesus' words. If you go back to John chapter 8, we'll look at a couple verses there. Verse 37. John chapter 8 is that great chapter where in verse 32 he says, you, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. In verse 37 he says this. I know that you are, you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. He's speaking to the Jews of his day. He says, yeah, you are descendants of Abraham, and you can count yourself as those descendants and think that that's going to mean something to God on your behalf. But he says, I'm looking at your character. He says, you seek to kill me. That says something about who you really are. Not who your mama is, who your daddy is. It's where your heart. What's in your heart? He says, you seek to kill me. He goes on from there. Verse 42, John chapter 8. Oh, before I finish that, look, look what he says in verse 37. You seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. My words find no place in you. That's a scary thing, isn't it? That God's truth, you know, they ain't letting God's word come anywhere there. It's like God's word is looking for a place to settle, and it's like, no, it can't go there. <laughs> it won't go there. There's no place for God's words there, in their heart, in their lives. Now verse 42 of John chapter 8. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. 
For I came from God, and I am here. I, can, I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. So it makes a very plain statement. If you love God, if you were of God, if he were your father, if you trusted him, you would love me. Verse 43, why do you not understand what I say? Then Jesus asked the question, then he answers it. It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Can you bear to hear God's word? Can you listen to it? Can you hear what Jesus is saying? There's a reason why they are in unbelief and they don't understand his words. His words have no part of them, no part with them. And then verse 47 of that same chapter, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you're not of God. Are you hearing God's words? Are you listening to what he's saying? Does the work of Jesus have any impact in your heart and in your life? Do they influence you? Do they move you? Do they challenge you? Do they bring you to utter belief and trust in him, to laying down your life for him? Jesus summarizes all this in John chapter 12. Look at verse 44 there. John 12, 44, Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me but in him who sent me. Whoever sees me sees him who sent me. He makes a correlation between believing in him and believing in God. He's, he's actually saying they're one and the same. You can't have one without the other. You can't claim to trust God and not believe in Jesus. Now, I have no problem saying that, but people don't understand that that, that, that tears down all other religions. If you're a Jew and worshiping in the synagogue today, you claim to, to respond and believe in the Old Testament, but you reject Jesus. Jesus says here that ain't possible. You can't have the Jehovah God of the Old Testament and reject Jesus. You can't do it. The Muslim world today claims to respect and honor Allah as God, but they discard Jesus. They say they respect him, but they don't trust him. You can't have it both ways. Jesus says, look, if you really are at one with God, you must, you will naturally or supernaturally, you will receive me. And if you don't, you have nothing to do with the true God. That's a powerful statement. Don't forget what Jesus is saying. Don't belittle what Jesus is saying. And so he goes on, verse, we're in John chapter 12, verse 45. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I've spoken will judge him on the last day. For I've not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Can he make it any plainer than that? 
He's saying, I speak on the authority of God because I speak what God has said to me. And if you reject what I'm saying, you reject what God has said. Jesus makes it clear. He's done works that are undeniable, but many found ways to still deny him. Our challenge today, do you see Jesus' works? Will you respond in faith to trust in Christ and to walk with him? Now, the temptation for some of us is to say, yeah, I've done that, as if it could be done once and that's it. What you should say is, I've done that and am doing that and won't stop. <laughs> I continue to trust in God and to love and to live by his word and live by his truth. Jesus is saying the works that he's done are undeniable. Today we've just briefly looked at that that work, and we haven't looked at the detail of it, but we looked at the work of calling Lazarus from the dead and giving him life again. Nobody who was there denied that that's what happened. They don't. They disregarded it. Or they believed in Jesus as a result of it. But they couldn't deny it. Jesus is challenging you today. You don't just believe in him once and or believe this about him. You trust him as Lord and Savior and you commit your life entirely to him. You give yourself to him as he is Lord and you are servant. My prayer is that we have come and recognize that today. Father, we thank you for your word. Pray that you guide hearts to trust in you. Choir, would you come lead us in the singing? Then after the choir song, we will close in a time of prayer.